The Treaty of Waitangi is not a silver bullet. The fixes, the solutions, the understandings are through the door. So you've just got to go through the treaty door. And if you get stuck there, kind of like admiring the door and trying to understand, you don't actually go through the door. The challenge is for us to step through that door and to uh, rediscover and to recover um, what's on the other side. Community Research Aotearoa are bringing to you our new podcast channel, bringing community practitioners, researchers and evaluators to you wherever you are. Our first series focuses on Te Tiriti or Waitangi and the way different practitioners apply the intent and principles in their respective mahi across kaupapa Māori research, education, climate change, homelessness and community development. This is Kay Marie Dunn and I look forward to opening up this dialogue and kōrero for your listening pleasure. Introducing Mike Smith, a well-known community activator across Aotearoa and a staunch advocate for kaupapa Māori responses to climate change. Yeah, well, it's uh, quite an interesting story, actually. Um, we quite often laugh to ourselves, uh, our family members, and that we were associated with Te Tiriti o Waitangi since before we were born, uh, and that um, Tupuna on my father's side were signatories to Te Tiriti o Waitangi, and on my Pākehā mum's side, uh, she is a descendant of James Freeman, who was uh, Hobson's uh, secretary, and he's the guy that actually penned the Tiriti o Waitangi. And so um, who would have thought, you know, all those years ago on the February the 6th in 1840, that the two parties that sat across the table from each other would be joined biologically hundreds of years later. And um, my, my own whakapapa links go back to both sides of the table back there in 1840. But as children... Uh, we had a copy of Te Tiriti o Waitangi within our house during the 1960s, the early 1960s. Uh, I remember as a child, um, my mum used to pull the document out and sit us down and she used to point out all the different um, rangatira that had signed it and tell us which ones that we were related to and talk to us about it. So I guess since the uh, since my childhood, we've had an awareness of it. At what point of your life... Do you feel that you started to become politically conscientised? Uh, yeah, well, I suppose that's an interesting question. So um, while we knew about it as children, we, I don't think we fully understood the political uh, aspects of it. Although our mother was at pains to tell us never to be um, beaten down by racism, to always be proud of who we were, not proud in the sense of being whakahihi or arrogant proud, but you know, don't ever bow your head off or feel put down on um, by racism because that was a very pre- prevalent force in the well in the 50s and the 60s when I was born in the 50s and in the 60s and right up to the uh, present day as well so you know she said always just remember that um, you know that uh, you know your tangata whenua that you um, come from te whareareke o Ngāpuhi and to always carry that um, feel proud of that I guess hold your head up and don't feel put down at all because you're Māori a nationally significant event, which obviously most people would probably uh, connect your name and the One Tree Hill um, incident. But before that took place, obviously you had been involved and engaged in protests prior to that too. So at what point was that all happening before this, this other incident that took place? I was trained as a, um, as a social worker, community worker, youth worker. Um, I guess we were trained... In that discipline, in those disciplines, in terms of a Māori worldview, just by virtue of the fact that we were expected to look after people around us, to Manaki and to Tautoko and to Afi, uh, people around us, um, you know, to be of service to others at the Marae when they come to look after them and extend your hospitality 
um, to others and um, and also to care for those that are around your own age and immediately below you. So, you know, if you're 20, you're expected to look after the 15-year-olds and if you're 15, you're expected to look after the 10-year-olds and if you're 10, you're meant to look after the 5-year-olds and uh, that was the, the order of things. So we were doing that uh, in the late 70s, 80s. We thought that was just what you did. But then uh, that was noticed by some others who said, well, look, um, we call that uh, youth work and community work. So um, I was um, bundled off to a tertiary institution uh, to study the theory of the Western theories around, um, you know, about social work. and But also social change. Um, there's two elements of social work. One is essentially looking after people as they fall as they fall off the cliff and smash themselves to bits on the rocks below and the other part of social work is about going to the top of the cliff and saying well why are people falling off the cliff in the first place and if there are people throwing them off the cliff to address that you know to challenge that and to change that and so um, we became change agents quite professionally we studied the works of Paolo Freire and and uh, Saul Alinsky and some of the great Western sort of revolutionary thinkers of the time who are about challenging uh, oppression, uh, who are about um, you know, the inequities uh, within society, the structural and systemic um, uh, problems. Um, we also studied under Jesuit um, uh, priests who were very aligned with the, um, and I'm not Christian myself, but however, they were very, very well schooled as I guess the learned class within the Catholic religion, they were the, the intellectuals and the thinkers quite often. And so some of these people were working with revolutionary movements in different parts of the world, standing beside oppressed peoples and helping them throw off the uh, yoke of injustice, I guess you could say. So professionally, um, that's how I sort of started getting involved. Uh, I think that was in my mid-20s. I'm 64 now. And so I had probably 40-odd years of uh, professional uh, work uh, in that area of um, social change. So obviously one part of social change and part of the analysis of what's happening to us as a people involves history and part of that history is also about te tiriti or waitangi. But I don't consider it the most substantive part. I think what happened before te tiriti or waitangi is the substantive part that we should focus on, which is you know our own frameworks of understanding our own Māori worldview the Treaty of Waitangi just guaranteed that that would be respected and um, that would not be usurped and that would be maintained um, in the face of colonisation. I mean, people don't normally go, hey, I'm an activist now. But you did use the influences from your childhood, the influences of the rangatira around you and the communities around you and your professional background, which then you started to say, actually, I think we need to be looking at the root cause of issues and inequity. And I'm really interested in the thinking and the decision-making of that time for you to move from being a social change agent to actually shifting into becoming an activist. What was the thinking that you had at that stage? Well, I guess an activism is not a, you know, hare kupu Māori te tuatahi. So it's not a Māori concept or it's not a descriptor. You know, we wouldn't get up at a, at a marae and say, you know, I'm an activist. I'm an activist. It's not. It's just a word from another language, mm. and it's uh, to to describe people that take action on things. And I guess so. I don't really call myself that, but other people have described us as that. No, I'd consider that the work that we did was just, um, as I said, it was part of our initially our social obligation to care for uh, for others, uh, each other, 
and that uh, balance is a very strong concept within the value system of Māori. The concept of utu, often uh, misunderstood as revenge, or but actually it's a, like, about balance. And so if things are unbalanced, if you see somebody that's, um, uh, that's got problems, um, you, you've got an obligation to make sure that the balance in their life is restored. So it's a balancing act. So you might be able to call me a tightrope walker, perhaps. And, it's, and to some degree, that's what it's been like. It's been like walking a very taunt line between uh, two competing sort of systems, two competing worldviews. You mentioned that you had a love for gardening and hunting and gathering. And of course, a large chunk of your life of late has been dedicated to climate justice and raising the awareness, especially in our whanau hapu communities around the impact of climate change, um, really looking and observing the different shifts and changes of the seasons and, and water, etc. How did you shift from where you were into that space? Um, well, I don't know if I sort of shifted into that space, but I think that was the space that we occupied and that framed um, our outlook on life then and now. That's the essential building blocks of Te Ao Māori. Those were explained to us when we were, when we were younger by our kaumātua of the time whom described levels of mana to us, you know, mana atua being the fundamental core um, level, the highest principles, the um, the aho tapu, if you like, that um, from which everything derives. So it's a fundamental starting point. Mana atua or atua tanga in te ao Māori is basically the environment. So you've got tangaroa, tawhiri, mātea, papatūnuku, rangi, wera, atua, katoa, and they're all representations of the natural world. So that's the starting point. And then the second mana is mana tangata, which is about the relationships that we have between ourselves, uh, you know, kaumātua, mokopuna, tāne, wahine, um, different iwi, uh, whānau hapu iwi, different iwi around the country, uh, people from overseas. So those relationships that we have is the second layer of mana. And that's got to be consistent with the first layer, which is environmental concern. So environment first, human organisation second, and mana whenua, uh, as was explained to us, is um, the characteristics of the land that would provide us with sustenance. So, you know, so a ripo ripo or a, um, a swamp, a ripo would, uh, has its own mana, patra bush has its own mana, and essentially that's the cornerstone of our Māori economy. The, the first principle, atuatanga, environment, second, tangata, human organisation, third, whenua, the economy. Now, that's how things are ranked for us. In the Western paradigm, that's kind of flipped on its head. And the economy or money is the god. It's the first driving principle quite often. Uh, human organisation is relegated as, as second. And uh, we're not too sure, or well, the environment's been so trashed that we would consider that the atuatanga has just been uh, ignored, debased, despoiled. Growing up with those concepts in our heads, we didn't come into the environmental movement. We are of the environment itself. We are made up of it. It governs us. We've got to listen to it. We've got to live in harmony with it. You know, you've been working in this space for some time, well before it became um, chic and and, uh, and and something cool. I think you've been really consistent in at least raising our people's awareness that things are going to change. Things like you might need to consider Fano uh, we or Marais base because we're looking at rising sea levels. We're looking at increased erosion. We're looking at um, the change of salinity levels in, in seawater, which is going to impact our kaimoana. And, and these are messages that you have been sharing for some time. But we're getting to a place where we're at a tipping point in the climate 
Does Tetriti have a relevancy inside of climate justice, and if so, why? Yeah, well, I guess uh, it comes back to, I see Tetriti or Waitangi as basically a door between two worlds. And so you have Te Ao Māori with these concepts of mana and all that sort of stuff reside. And then if you if you cross through that world, through the doorway of the treaty, which the treaty basically said, we're going to keep a door open between those two worlds. And Māori, if you want to live in Te Ao Māori, you can. But if you want to cross over into Te Ao Pākehā, you can, and vice versa. You've got to go past the Treaty of Waitangi. The Treaty of Waitangi is not a silver bullet for fixing anything. The, 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 the fixes, the solutions... The understandings are through the door. So you've just got to go through the treaty door. Mm. And if you get stuck there, kind of like admiring the door and trying to understand too much about it, so the actual makeup of the door, you don't actually go through the door. And so I think the challenge is for us to step through that door and to uh, rediscover and to recover um, what's on the other side. And of course, colonisation was about slamming the door. They didn't want us to live in Tao Māori. They wanted us to just travel through the door into their world and that they would shut the door behind us. As part of the corrosive effects of colonisation, that's about forced amnesia. So you're forced to forget, you know, forget your histories, forget who your ancestors were, to forget your stories, your knowledge, your language, your songs, the place names of the land and why, all the practices that were developed over thousands of years. And people say, well, Māori's only been here since, you know, the last thousands of years but we come from the Pacific and we've been in the Pacific uh, for about 70,000 years and so all of our tikanga and our language and our practices were developed in, in, in the islands and that island culture if you live on a small atoll you've got to be in absolute harmony with nature because you don't have great expanses of natural resources to exploit so you've got to manage them like really really carefully if you wreck the joint <laughs> your history Essentially, over 70-odd thousand years of developing an awareness and customs uh, that tie you very close to nature, that's our kind of obligation. So it's not so much the treaty, but it's about connecting with our history and having a, a worldview that's somewhat different to the Western capitalist consumer worldview. You know, it's brought about the basically the sixth global extinction event, um, which is likely to kill off uh, hundreds of species every year. And it's threatening the viability of human life. And we've seen that in probably less than 200 years since the advent of capitalism, some of these kind of like hair-brained ideas that people have come up with. We've actually trashed our whole planet and we've trashed our children's futures, our mokopuna's futures. And so we're in a very precarious place right now. So I guess it's all of that that sort of leads me to what I'm involved in doing now. Have you watched that movie... Don't look up. Yeah, it's pretty and good. And so, you know, people have been linking it to a range of different real-life co-opera at the moment, not only just pandemic, um, but also climate denial and climate change. Could you see the parallels in what they were trying oh, to share? Abs- absolutely. You know, you had the science community and the Western science traditions, they've come to that conclusion like, what's happening? What are we doing? We're about to destroy the planet. The metaphor in the film is that it's an asteroid. And then you get the reactions of all the different sector groups in society. So the industrialists want to mine it. They think, oh, great, it's full of minerals. Let's get up there. Let's extract it. Let's, you know, let's extract and burn and, and create waste, and, and that'll be the way to deal with this. The politicians are trying to exploit it politically. You've got all kinds of um, conspiracy groups that emerge, you know, just say, don't look up, look down, or that it's something else. And so it really is, covers the whole microcosm of human reactions 
to a catastrophe from people that want to just make money out of it, monetize it, weaponize it, others that want to exploit it politically, uh, others that want to deny it, and you've got those people that have um, got a more of a clear-eyed view of it that are wanting everybody to join up to have a collective approach to fixing it, but they can't do that because of this divisions within society. There's no common thread that threads everybody together, almost a spiritual uh, obligation to each other and everything around them to not do those negative behaviours. There is no thread. There is no golden thread between our societies anymore. You've seen it with the COVID, you know, don't interfere with my personal rangatira tanga, yada, yada, yada. And so there's not that sense of collective obligation towards each other and collective effort that's required to overcome great obstacles such as that. Do you see hope for our communities moving forward in regards to, you know, are we fucked, Jake, basically? Yeah, um, well, I'm sort of I'm sort of 50-50 on that. Uh, on my optimistic days, I wake up and I think, yeah, now we got this. There's a whole alternative uh, framework. Uh, we don't have to go out there and reinvent it. It's already here. It's got its own language. It's got its own uh, spiritual beliefs. It's got its own radio stations and TV stations these days. We've got a cultural system that's different from the one that's that uh, that's bringing us to our knees. And so we don't have to go out and reinvent it. It's just there. it's already there. Mm. Um, but what we've got to do is adhere to it. So on my optimistic days, I think, yeah, no, we can do this. On other days, I think, why isn't that happening? So the inertia is both political and that the politicians are scared to do the right thing. They know what to do. The sci- they've got access to the best scientists in the, in the world. The scientists are clear. They're saying what it is that's required. But the politicians are thinking, well, if we do that, people are going to get really, un- you know, it's going to be unpopular and we're going to get voted out of office. So they won't do it, you know. The industrialists. Manufacturers. Media, yeah, manufacturers or media companies, you know, they know that their algorithms are are dangerous and causing disharmony, but, you know, this, they don't want to change the business model. So, yeah, that's where the inertia comes from. We have the ability as humans to, to change our behaviours radically if we, if we decided to. But it's just the people that have their hands on the levers of power don't want to do it, and that's why people have to rise up and we've got to collectively get together and we've got to hold governments and industries' feet to the fire. Why do you think Tatriti and an understanding of uh, Tatriti um, might be important for the community and voluntary sector? It's really important that we know our history, that so that we know that where we've come from and what works and what doesn't work, and what are the visionary and the aspirational sorts of things that our society might want to aspire to. It's important to have those those uh, visionary points in the future that we can sort of plant a f- stake in the ground and say this is how we see ourselves. This is the people, the nation that we want to be together, Māori, Pākehā or people from whatever country. I sort of see it like a marriage, you know. It's like if you love each other and you want to express that in some kind of formal declaration to the world, well, then you get a marriage certificate. But you've got to love each other. I guess it's whether or not the treaty in the future actually reflects the aspirations of the people of the time. Around the time that the treaty was signed, I mean, Māori's outnumbered Pākehās about 10 to 1. There's only about 4,000 Pākehās in the country at the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. And Ngāpui had 4,000 armed warriors, just one tribe. So I think there was a lot more respect. It might have been a respect born of fear. But now that the uh, numbers have changed, I don't think there's that same kind of respect. So 
I mean, the racism that you hear when you turn on the talk shows or if you go into some of the dark corners of the internet, chat groups and stuff like that, you see there's a lot of racism in this country. And so you sort of wonder, well, does the treaty really meaningfully mean anything to, um, you know, to people? Uh, and uh, there'll be classes of people. There'll be people that don't give a toss about it. They wouldn't even consider it as part of their working day. They certainly wouldn't be on their list of 100 things to aspire to as being a New Zealander. There's haters, you know, who just reckon it's the worst thing. It's the work of Satan and the devil and that all treaty activists and Māori should be, you know, be better if we weren't on earth and um, should be rounded up and put to death. You know, the white supremacists and um, and the others. Um, and there's quite a few of them organised. There's about 13 organised white supremacist groups within this country and some thousands of uh, members. Uh, so you've got that kind of sex in the society. You've got the, I'd say, the vast majority probably don't care. You've got Māori people who, that's a sacred document to them. But I think we've got to like look past, yeah, don't get hung up on the treaty as a, as a document or a mechanism. We've got to look to the intent of it. You know, and if the intent was that we had a harmonious, equitable uh, society in which people were all respected and provided for, well, then that's what we ought to go for. Waving the Treaty of Waitangi will remind us that that's what the aspiration was, but it's not going to achieve that necessarily. It's going to take other things to actually achieve that. Final question for the morning, uh, Mike, is what do you see as the future of Te Tiriti in 2022 and beyond? Um, well, I'd like for us to, I don't know, sometime soon to be able to look back on it and say, well, that was a vision, that was a really good vision, you know, of a way that people could live together and provide for both cultures. You can have your world, we can have our world, we're not expecting you to become Māoris, we don't want you to expect us to all forget about being Māoris and be somebody with somebody else. Let's be who we are and, uh, and we can do that in a pluralist kind of way that that vision is realised and that we can look back on that and go, that was a really good idea. We tried doing it the other way and it really didn't work. Uh, we learned the lessons from that and we decided to really um, invest in that as a vision and that we uh, realised that and look back and think, well, that was a good turning point and we turned in the right direction and we achieved that vision, a vision of uh, all peoples in this country being able to have sort of, um, you know, be able to live in dignity according to their ways and not feel pressured to you know I don't want everybody to have to eat hangis not everybody wants to eat kina mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's just like you don't know, force feed people sea urchins for dinner if they don't want them you know it's just to say well whatever you like you should be able to you know live according to your own your own customary uh, tastes and preferences uh, and and uh, we'll afford you that dignity as a human so it's about uh, respecting diversity and not trying to just say that we're all New Zealanders, that there's only one law for all, um, you know, speak English or die, and all this other very kind of monoculturalism uh, type pressures that we put uh, our people under. Just to be able to say, no, nah, it's cool to be, it's cool to be who you are, and diversity is the spice of life. Kia ora, Mike. Look, thank you for uh, being here with us today and sharing a, a bit of your backstory. I, I would like to share, I think I've already told you, Mike, I was about maybe 15, 14, 15, when you had been involved in the in the One Tree Hill incident. And I didn't know. I, I grew up not knowing or understanding. I definitely wasn't politicised at that time. But I remember raging at the TV and going, why did this guy do this? I don't understand, you know? Yeah. Because we were being fed 
white stream media who had labelled you as a radical, labelled you as an activist, and, and, and potentially as a madman who just decided to pull out a chainsaw oh, and, hack, and hack at a tree <laughs> without any thought or context. And it wasn't really until I personally became conscientised, and is that even a thing? I think, hey, I ended up making good mates, and then we ended up, I ended up learning and understanding the history of Aotearoa to understand what it was that you were actually trying to do, which is to not just shake the tree, but actually really force New Zealanders... <laughs> to look quite hard at the promises that had been made in an intent and that they had actually left that behind. So it, it, it caused a massive uh, uprising in, in different ways. And you have been one of the most um, significant speakers because the way that you presented yourself to mainstream media who kept trying to create a different narrative about who you were. And so I just want to thank you for that because I definitely appreciate your, your thinking and your approach and perhaps um, you've shifted into a different way now. Ah, still the same. Or expanded perhaps, but I think that's um, we, we can learn a great deal from the activities and the actions that you've taken. Are there any final thoughts that you want to share with our, our listeners today in, in regards to the actions that you'd like them to take to better care for each other and the environment or also any considerations around... Our, our political futures as a people? Well, we're going into a very challenging time with uh, Omicron about to arrive on our shores. And uh, I heard news today that um, within a fortnight, half of Europe will be uh, infected by Omicron. So it is a very, very highly contagious disease. It's going to cause a lot of anxiety. People are going to be worried. It's going to cause um, all sorts of disruptions. We've been through the preliminary uh, COVID infection, so we know what's coming, we know what to do. So I just, I just say to people, um, you know, just be solid. You're just going to have to, everybody's going to need to find that sort of solidity within themselves to get through this next uh, 12 months. And it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster ride, but we will come through at the other end. This is not a global extinction event. It's a lot of people are going to get sick and some people are going to sadly pass away, but not everybody's going to get wiped out by it. However, climate change, well, that's a different thing, but um, let's get through COVID uh, first, and we will. So be kind to each other. If you find yourself um, getting stressed out, my major piece of advice is use the healing power of water and go for a swim, jump in a shower. It'll change your whole framework of thinking. If those parents have got kids, you'll know when your kids are scratchy, tired, grumpy, playing up at the end of a hot, a hot day. Chuck them in the bath, then when they're singing, they're relaxing, next minute they're asleep. So take advantage of that. That's free, it's out there for all of us. It's about tuning into the power of our natural world and uh, using the, the power of healing uh, that's within nature to give us uh, that respite. So go for a swim every day, I reckon, over the next little while. and It'll, it'll help your mental health incredibly, actually. So yeah. There's no side effects apart from drowning. Awesome. And perhaps also, as um, Mike shared, his original love was um, for the mata, so for the gardens, and getting out into the ngahere, hunting and diving. So getting into nature is also a, a healing uh, opportunity for you all as well. So Ihuama, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciated it. Um, we look forward to sharing more podcast interviews with you, with other practitioners to talk about how te tiriti uh, is relevant to them and how they use that as a, a framework of thinking um, and of guidance uh, in their practice. Take care, modi ora, and see you again soon. Ka kite. You've been listening to a podcast by Community Research. 
working together to raise the mana of community research across Aotearoa, New Zealand. Mm -hmm.